hello everyone, and let me say happy Easter to all of you. We're so glad that you're in worship today. The resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead is the most important event in history. Now, does that sound like an exaggeration to you? Does that sound like something that, yeah, sure, a preacher would say on Easter weekend? Well, it's absolutely true. If Jesus conquered that grave, then that's the most important fact in all of history. It means that we have hope beyond the grave. Years ago, there was a show that focused on these 911 situations. You know, the, the times when people are in dire straits and on the brink of death. And one particular show uh, showed three amateur cave explorers who had maneuvered into the far recesses of a cave. What they didn't know is that a flash flood was happening outside. It was raining so hard, I mean... It was disastrous, and their cave began to flood as well. The water was rising rapidly, and they found a, a little ledge that they could get up on to try to get away from the rising current, and their heads were up against the ceiling, but the water was continuing, and it was now up around their waist and continuing to rise. And they figured that at the rate it was going, they had less than an hour to live. Well, the strongest swimmer among them said, there's got to be a way out of here, and I'm going to find it. So he dived beneath the water and began searching. He found a passageway and started following it, even though he didn't know how long it was. And about 20 feet on the other side, he came out of the water into a larger cavern where he knew that he and his friends would be safe. Well, he waited for several minutes to try to catch his breath, and then he plunged back beneath the water and crawled and swam his way back to his friends, and then he burst up out of the water with the news. Now, when their friend came back out of the water after several minutes, that was the greatest news they could possibly receive. In fact, when he came back after several minutes' absence, it was proof that there was a way of escape and there was hope. That was more important than the score of the ball game the evening before, more important than the rising or falling of the stock market. That was the greatest news that these desperate explorers could receive. Now, friends, the resurrection of Jesus Christ provides that kind of hope for us. The longer we live, the more we realize that our time is slipping away. Nobody gets out of this world alive. One out of every one person's dies. But Jesus died on the cross. He was buried, and suddenly he burst forth from the grave, demonstrating for us that there is hope for survival. He's the only one who ever said, I'm the resurrection in the and, and the life. He who believes in me will live, even though he dies. And the fact that Jesus Christ defeated death is the most important fact of history. 
Josh McDowell is a popular Christian apologist. He's written dozens of books, and he's been uh, defending the Christian faith for decades. McDowell said, after over 700 hours of concentrated study about the resurrection of Jesus, he has determined that the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the most cruel, heartless hoax ever foisted on the minds of men, or it's the most fantastic fact of history. When we leave here today, I hope you'll leave, it, you'll leave believing that it is the most fantastic fact of history. Now, to accomplish that, I want us to look at some of the people that Jesus appeared to immediately after his resurrection. If you have a Bible of your own or a portable device that you use to look at Scripture, I would invite you to find John chapter 20 right now. That's where we're going to start, and you can just leave it open. We're going to be looking at several verses in John. John chapter 20 is the text. I want us to see three of the people or groups of people that Jesus appeared to after his resurrection. The first appearance was to a woman named Mary Magdalene. You might, you might say that Mary's response was feeling. Feeling is believing. Now, try to put yourself in Mary's sandals that first Easter Sunday morning. You see, Jesus had changed her life. Mark's gospel tells us that Jesus had cast seven demons out of Mary. Now, some people believe that Mary, before she met Jesus, had been a prostitute. Uh, I think that probably comes more from Jesus Christ Superstar, uh, the play and the movie, than it does from anything else, because it's certainly not in the Bible. But we do know from Scripture that she had been tormented by demons, and Jesus had set her free. He had forgiven all of her sin. He had adopted her into God's family. He was literally changing Mary's life from the inside out. And so she was crushed when Christ was crucified. Verse 1 reads, On the first day of the week, while it was still dark, Mary Magdalene went to the tomb and saw that the stone had been removed from the entrance. Now, she had brought some spices and perhaps flowers to decorate the grave, but she was shocked to see that the body was missing. We read on in verse 2. So she came running to Simon Peter and the other disciple, the one Jesus loved, and said, they have taken the Lord out of the tomb, and we don't know where they've put him. And the story goes on with Simon and John running to the tomb to investigate, seeing the empty tomb, and then heading on their way back to Jerusalem. Let's pick the story up again down in verse 10. Verse 10. Then the disciples went back to their homes, but Mary stood outside the tomb crying. As she wept, she bent over to look into the tomb and saw two angels in white seated where Jesus' body had been, one at the head and the other at the foot. They asked her, woman, why are you crying? They've taken my Lord away, she said, and I don't know where they've put him. At this, she turned around and saw Jesus standing there, but she did not realize that it was Jesus. Now, let's push pause right there on the story. We'll return in a moment. 
You know, folks, the Bible just doesn't read like a lie. Let me explain what I mean by that. If men in the first century had been just creating this story for their own selfish purposes, they would have never in a million years had Jesus' first appearance be to a woman. Because in that particular culture at that time, a woman's testimony wasn't even credible in a court of law. No. If they were making this story up, they would have certainly had Jesus appear to Simon Peter first, or, or maybe James, one of the early leaders in the church, or, or maybe the entire Jewish Sanhedrin, just for emphasis. But the real story, the way it really happened in space and time, is that Jesus appeared first to a woman, and she didn't even recognize it. She thought he was the gardener. Maybe her weeping had sort of blinded her eyes a bit. Maybe Jesus concealed his identity temporarily. We don't know. But then he spoke her name, and she immediately did an emotional somersault. She whipped around and ecstatically shouted, Rabbi, and she was understandably thrilled. Her heart leapt into her throat. She began to grab him and held on. This was her Lord, the one who had changed her life. Finally, Jesus said, stop holding on, Mary. I've got a job to do, and so do you. I want you to go back and tell my disciples what has happened. And verse 18 reads, Mary Magdalene went to the disciples with the news, I have seen the Lord. Wow. Mary had a moment of spiritual ecstasies here, and she understandably wanted to hold on to that. To her, feeling was believing. You know what? I meet a lot of people today who evaluate their faith that way by their feelings. I do. A lot of people. Maybe you had a spiritual experience years ago, and you'll never, ever forget the way you felt. Maybe it was when you were first saved or came to Christ. Maybe it was when you were baptized. Maybe it was when a child was born. Or maybe uh, uh, your marriage was in trouble and God began to turn it around. And maybe you go through the rest of your life trying to recapture that moment. I know people who do. I know folks who had such a profound experience years ago and it was such an emotional high that they go to conference after conference, church meeting after church meeting, camp after camp, trying to get that old feeling back. And I get it. Emotions are an important part of spiritual experience. But can I say to you, feelings are always going to fluctuate. We don't need to walk out of church uh, saying, hey, how did you feel? Oh, that's okay to ask, but that's not the most important question. The most important question is, did I engage with the Lord? Did I hear this truth? Did I speak the truth? And did I have a dynamic experience with God, regardless, regardless of the way I felt emotionally? God never intended the Christian life to be one continuous high. One continuous mount of transfiguration. Eventually, we've got to go down to the valley as well. Less than two weeks ago, on Monday night, April the 3rd, the University of North Carolina won another men's basketball championship. 
by beating a, a wonderful Gonzaga team. Now, if you're a Tar Heel fan, like many people in our church are, you probably were slapping high fives. You were probably whooping it up, laughing, celebrating as the victory was won. And I don't blame you. You deserve it. But if tomorrow you got together with a close friend who was also a fan, I doubt if you could muster up the same emotion. Emotions tend to fade. And your Christian life is the same way. Again, emotions are an important part, but faith is more than just emotions. And Mary was going to have to learn that, as we all do. By the way, your commitment to your job is more than emotions too, isn't it? You know what? If you only go to work when you are excited about it, whoo, <laughs> you're going to have a lot of jobs in your lifetime, let me tell you right now. No. Your faith in Christianity has got to supersede emotion. Paul said, be prepared in season and out of season when you feel like it and when you don't. That's why Jesus said, let go, Mary. We can't stay here. We've got to get on with the business at hand. And maybe that's a word you need to hear on this wonderful weekend. Well, Jesus' second appearance in John 20 is when he appeared to a group of 10 disciples meeting in the upper room. And their response, you might say, was seeing. Seeing is believing. In verse 19, we read, on the evening of that first day of the week, when the disciples were together, in other words, it was Sunday evening, with the doors locked for fear of the Jews. They were afraid of what reprisals there might be against them. Now put yourself in the skin of those disciples for a moment. They're behind locked doors. The atmosphere must have been electric as they pieced together these pieces of evidence that they had for the resurrection. I mean, they must have been asking each other, who possibly rolled that stone away? I mean, that stone weighed over a ton. Who moved it? And where's the missing body? I mean, who took the corpse? And what about the abandoned grave clothes? I mean, come on. Why would a grave robber take the time to kind of take these grave clothes and then leave them perfectly there in the shape of a mummy? But that's exactly the way they found them. And then there were these convinced eyewitnesses. These women, Mary Magdalene and the other women who were swearing that they had seen the risen Christ. And surely, surely someone in that room must have remembered that Jesus had prophesied about this very thing. He had literally said to them, I will die and will rise again the third day. Surely someone remembered he had said he would come back from the grave. But in spite of all that evidence, they still wanted more. They wanted to see something with their own eyes to convince them. Verse 19 goes on, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. Don't you know that goosebumps jumped out on their arms? I mean, think about it. Without unlocking or opening the door, he just appeared in their midst. By the way, the Bible says that our resurrected bodies are going to be like his. In other words, 
when we are raised one day and receive a glorified body, it will have that same ability to penetrate the walls of a room. It can suspend the whole dynamics of molecular structure. And Jesus did that to the astonishment of his disciples. Verse 20, after he said this, he showed them his hands inside. The disciples were overjoyed when they saw the Lord. Now think about it. To these disciples, seeing was believing. And wow, do I meet a lot of people like that today. They'll only believe it if they can see it. Do you remember years ago when there was aggressive space exploration going on and that first Russian cosmonaut went up into outer space? His name was Titov. And he came back after that journey and he boasted. Remember, the official uh, position of his country was atheism. And so he came back right on cue, and boasted, I have been to outer space, and I did not see God. W.A. Criswell, a Baptist preacher in Texas at the time, said, if he'd have stepped out of that space capsule, he would have seen God. I'll tell you right now. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. And some people are like that. They're not satisfied unless they can see evidence beyond the evidence of Scripture. They want to see Noah's Ark. Then I'll believe. They want to see computer evidence for Joshua's lost day. They want to have an out-of-body experience. They want to see a miracle. Then I'll be convinced. Is that you? I believe that God has given us plenty of evidence to believe, but sometimes we just want to insist on more. We want to see something. With our own eyes. That's the way these disciples were. One of the most convincing things to me today, in spite of all the other evidence biblically and so on, in spite of all the archaeological evidence that has confirmed the accuracy of Scripture, in spite of all the fulfilled prophecies that has also bolstered our faith in the Word of God, one of the most convincing things to me is changed lives. By the way, in case you don't know, sitting all around you today are dozens and dozens and dozens of people, and many of them, their lives have been dramatically changed by Jesus Christ. Let me ask you a question. Who's changing lives like that if Jesus isn't alive? Oh, he's changing my life. And people all around you could give that same testimony. Hebrews tells us that faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. But there's a third distinct appearance of Jesus that John records that I want us to look at. If Mary's reaction was feeling is believing, if the disciples was seeing is believing, in this appearance to Thomas... One of the disciples, I believe you could say of Thomas, proving, proving is believing. For some reason, when Jesus appeared that first Easter Sunday evening, Thomas wasn't present. We don't know where he was, but he wasn't there. And when his fellow disciples said to him, look, Thomas, we've seen Jesus, he's alive, he wasn't buying it. In fact, he said, unless I see the nail marks in his hands and put my finger where the nails were and put my hand into his side, I will not believe it. I'm sure he must have thought, listen, you guys could be hallucinating. I mean, maybe somebody was 
impersonating Jesus. Come on, I'm not that gullible. I'm not going to believe that easily. I don't know about you guys. Maybe you've been smoking that medical marijuana again. I don't know. Maybe you've been eating those hallucinogenic mushrooms. They'll give you weird experiences. He just wasn't going to believe it. I need some proof, he said. I'm impressed by how Jesus dealt with Thomas. He just waited a week. Hey, let me ask you a personal question. Maybe you have a friend or a family member who doesn't believe. How do you respond? Do you hit the panic button? Do you start cramming reasons down their throat why they must believe? Listen, 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 listen. Every thinking person in this world is going to go through periods of doubt. We need to be aware of that. Don't, don't panic. Jesus just let Thomas grind it out alone for seven days. And then in verse 26, we read what happened a week later. A week later, his disciples were in the house again, and Thomas was with them. Though the doors were locked, Jesus came and stood among them and said, peace be with you. I'm really glad he's saying peace be with you every time, or otherwise they'd be scared out of their minds, don't you know? So he tries to calm them down every time. Then he said to Thomas, put your finger here. See my hands. Reach out your hand and put it into my side. Stop doubting and believe. Wow, that's impressive. He didn't attack Thomas' character. He didn't chide or chastise him for doubting. He just put the undeniable proof in front of him. And then Thomas humbly confessed, my Lord and my God. I am confident. I am confident there are people here today who haven't placed their faith, their trust in Jesus Christ because they want more proof. I'm confident of that. Maybe you say, look, I, I would believe if somebody could just prove to me that there's a God. If someone could just prove to me that Jesus came back from the grave. Listen, I'll be, I'd not only believe, I would be I would be a committed follower. But although you've read books, although you've listened to truckloads of messages, you're still not convinced. I'm afraid I'm gonna burst somebody's bubble right now, but I've gotta say it. I've just gotta go ahead and say it. If that's you, you're probably never gonna have the proof you're looking for. You're probably never going to have the proof you crave and desire because, let me say it again, faith is being sure of what you hope for and certain of what you do not see. And Jesus really kind of put the whole faith thing in context in verse 29 when he said, because you have seen me, Thomas, you have believed, but, catch this part, blessed are those who have not seen, that's us, Blessed are those who have not seen and yet have believed. You know what our response ought to be? Trusting is believing. 
Feelings are not enough because feelings are going to fluctuate. Faith is more than feelings. Faith is more than something that demands to see something in order every week in order to keep it going. And faith doesn't require absolute proof, or it isn't faith. It's, it would be knowledge. Faith examines the evidence and then responds intelligently. The former chief justice of England, Lord Darling, wrote, there exists such overwhelming evidence for the resurrection, both factual and circumstantial, that no intelligent jury in the world could fail to bring in a verdict that the resurrection story is true. I agree with that. But maybe you're here and you're still wrestling. You're really wrestling with faith and you, you've not yet really made a decision about this whole thing. Well, as I wrap up today, I want to mention some of the most common reasons that I believe people struggle with making a decision for Jesus Christ. These are things that I've struggled with back before I came to Christ, and they're some of the most common things I see over many, many years of ministry now. Number one, your challenge may be indecisiveness. You know, some people just have trouble making decisions. The former Chrysler executive, Lee Iacocca, years ago said, an executive has to learn to make decisions when 95% of the evidence is in. If he or she waits until they're 100% sure, it's too late. And there does come a moment in life when you need to make a choice. But if you can't make decisions based on evidence you're probably never gonna become a follower of Jesus. But you know, I've also seen another challenge that I think is a big problem for many. It, it, it certainly was for me before I came to Christ, and that is, frankly, sin. Now let me explain. I meet an increasing number of people, hear me now, who don't believe because deep down inside, they really don't wanna believe. Because if they ever believed and acknowledged that this is true, it would mean they would have to alter their lifestyle. Two shipwrecked sailors had been adrift on a raft for days, and they were getting desperate. They were starving to death. Uh, they were languishing. Their life was ebbing away. And finally, one of them knelt on the raft and began to pray, Oh, Lord, I know I haven't lived a good life. I've drank way too much booze. Oh, God, I've lied and I've cheated. I've done so many things I'm ashamed of, but Lord, if you just save me, I promise. Hold it, interrupted his shipmate. Don't say another word. I think I've just spotted land. Yeah. And you know, that's us, isn't it? We interrupt our decisions and we think, maybe I don't want to give up my lifestyle even though I know it's contrary to God's will. Maybe I don't want to be a good steward of my money and my time and let God call the shots in my life. And selfishly, we refuse to believe. Let me say it again. I've talked, no exaggeration, to literally hundreds and hundreds of people about faith in Christ. And I want to tell you, my experience, far more doubt is moral than intellectual. 
I meet very few people who have sound intellectual reasons for not believing. I meet a ton of people who have moral reasons. I just don't want to change. But finally, your challenge may simply be ego. I think that's the most common for most of us. Some years ago, Ted Turner famously said, Christianity is a religion for losers. I don't need anybody to die for me. God bless you, Ted. Well, Christianity's not for losers, but can I tell you? It is for people who are humble enough to admit they've sinned, fallen short of God's standards, his glory, and who are willing humbly to admit, I do need someone to die for me because I can't take care of my sins by myself. I can never be good enough to earn heaven. If I'm ever going to go, it's going to be on someone else's perfection, not mine. And the only Savior who qualifies is Jesus. That's what the cross is all about. But that takes, takes humility to admit that. Remember the analogy I started with at the beginning of the message? The three cave explorers, the water swirling around them. Well, there's one serious flaw in that analogy, and here it is. They saw their friend come back after several minutes. It was easy for them to believe. We don't see Jesus rise from the dead, do we? So the analogy for us might be like this. We're trapped there, uh, our time is limited, but we see there etched on the wall right in front of us a message. And it says there's another larger cavern where you can be safe. It's just 20 feet away through the small passageway, floor level, west side. And it's signed by four credible cave explorers that you recognize and respect. Now, if that were your situation, what would you do? If you had any decisiveness at all, if you had any intelligence, if you had any courage at all, you'd plunge into that water and follow that passageway. John ends this chapter with these words, but these things are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Father, help us today to have life through Jesus Christ because we trust. Thank you that faith is more than feelings. It's not based on just seeing to prop it up. It certainly doesn't require absolute proof. Thank you that our relationship with you begins with humble trust and may that be our choice today in Jesus' name. Amen.